the scenario I'm going to put out here for you is, is not so fanciful at all. I want you to imagine with me that you are uh, watching your favorite television show or perhaps the big game, and this uh, announcement comes on the scrawl down there on the bottom of the screen, breaking news, and your response is, ah, and then you switch the channel. Uh, perhaps you're driving down the road, you're listening to some talk radio show, as things are getting interesting, you're, you're finding yourself pulled into the conversation, and then the conversation, the discussion shifts to the realm of the upcoming election, or the primaries, or candidates, and you say, ugh, and you turn the dial. Or perhaps you're reading the newspaper, and you, you open it up, and you're flipping through, and and you just, all you wanted to do was check the, the Titan score or whatever, and you, you, but you know, your attention comes upon a headline that's talking about some, some amendment, you know, some, some referendum, some boring old thing like that. And so you just flip the page in frustration, you make your way to Dilbert. You know, you're, 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 gang, you're, you're gunning for the comics at, at, that, at that point. Um, because after all, what does any of that stuff matter, right? Who cares? Why should we vote? Why should we be engaged? Why should we care? And why is the preacher talking about this? And what does faith have to say? What does the Bible have to say? What does the gospel have to say? To those questions. Why should we care? And what difference should that make? If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd ask you to turn now with me to Psalm 24. Just the first two verses is all I want to read. Um, Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 24. This is the Older Testament. The Psalms pretty much right at the heart of the Bible, right there in the middle, so if you're trying to find it. The Psalms. This is Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's holy word. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Let's pray together. I'm going to start us in prayer with this beautiful old prayer you can see in your quotes and notes, part of the preface of the old Geneva Bible from the 16th century. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has most graciously given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word, assist us with your spirit that it may be written on our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ and to increase in us all the heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, uh, I want to talk to you for a moment about a, a, a man who lived many years ago, whose name is sadly not known widely today, but it is a name well worth knowing. Abraham Kuyper, born in 1837. He died in 1920. He was one of Holland's societal leaders, both in the educational realm, 
the government and in the church as, as well. He was uh, a unique guy, to say the least, in that he carried on such parallel careers and such seemingly completely separate tracks and fields of, of life. He was regarded as both a thinker and a leader. One of his biographers described him this way. Kuiper carried a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, for he was both a builder and a battler. His followers loved him with warm, undying devotion, while his enemies hated him as they hated no one else. I like this guy already, you know? Um, what is it, though, that enabled him? What is it that, that, that compelled him? What is it that, that drove him, motivated him to carry on such parallel careers in such different, seemingly separate fields? Well, I'll tell you what it was. Abraham Kuyper lived what he taught. He lived what he taught. Well, that, of course, begs the question, what did he teach? In 1898, he came over to this side of the pond and delivered a series of lectures known as the, the Stone Lectures at Princeton Theological Seminary. This was back when you could trust something of what Princeton Theological Seminary would say. 1898, and a famous quote that is really well worth your committing to memory, uh, he spoke it in the course of those lectures. And this is actually in your quotes and notes. I believe it's the one at the top. There is not a square inch of the universe which King Jesus does not claim mine. That's what Abraham Kuyper was about. Now that, that sentiment, of course, stands in stark contrast to today, especially when you start talking about this strange little admixture of faith and politics. You've got one group, I'll just, you know, I'm going to broad paintbrush strokes here, okay? One group I'll call it more of a, from a secular perspective, that would be at most, well, at best, condescendingly supportive of someone who wants to integrate faith and politics, likely more like suspicious, possibly even outright hostile, because the perspective is that sort of thinking has no business coming into the public sphere. Keep it out. Keep it to yourself. That would be one perspective. A secular perspective. Keeping Jesus outside the door, if you will, of City Hall. Here's another one. Broad paintbrush strokes. That pretty much actually has the exact same effect, though it comes at things from a completely different perspective. And it's something of a religious perspective. And because of this, the pers this perspective draws this sharp line, a dichotomy between all things sacred and all things secular. That is to say, uh, we're all about Sunday and we're singing loud and singing proud on Sunday morning. But when it comes to Monday morning, the two shall not mix, you see. And there are a lot of folks that, that live like that. Now you see how where this is going. You've got two different perspectives, a secular and a religious perspective, but they both end up at the same place. Jesus is cast out of the public sphere. There's no place for faith in city hall or government or politics or elections or amendments or any of the issues. And yet then you have David, King David, Psalm 24. Let me read these, you know, it's not a long text. Um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That is to say, it's a fancy way of saying everything. Everything is his. 
the world and those who dwell therein. That is to say, everything and everyone is his. Or, as Kuiper put it, again, there is not a square inch of the universe which King Jesus does not say, mine. Jesus is king. You can't cut him out of politics. You can't cut him out of anything. You can't cut him out of your, your career. You can't cut him out of entertainment. You can't cut him out of leisure. You can't cut him out of family. You can't cut him out, cut him out of finances, and you can't cut him out of politics. He is king. And the universe is his realm, which transforms everything. It, it informs and transforms everything, including just this narrow conversation topic for today, including our approach to political engagement because Christ is king and nothing is excluded. All is included under his realm. It transforms it all. How so? It tells us two things. That's where I'm going in the next few minutes. Why to be engaged and how to be engaged. Why to be engaged and how to be engaged. Let's start with the first question. Why? What reason? What deep Real reason can you give as to why a Christian, a follower of, of Jesus in the 21st century, what, what, would what would impel us, what would compel us, what would sustain us, by the way? You know, not just, you know, get us excited, but keep us going in terms of involvement in such, in such things. Well, I want to start with this. The lens we use, and what I mean by that is a, is a four-part uh, history of the world that I'm going to give you in about two minutes, okay? A four-part history of the world. And if the history you learned in school doesn't accord with this, then burn the book, okay? Because this is how it works. This is the world in which we, have li we live now. It starts with this, creation. God's making all things of nothing by the mere word of his power. He spoke it into being. And we, mankind, male and female, as the climax of his creation, the high point of it all, made in his image, according to his likeness, as rational, responsible, physical, relational, spiritual creatures. We begin at the beginning. That is the foundation of it all. If you don't start there, you've started nowhere. With your feet firmly in the air. Creation. But there's a second part. Moving on, the fall. Adam believed the lie, turned his back on God, brought himself and all this world under God's curse, that they're bringing a ripple effect of tearing and separations and ruptures and brokenness into every sphere, every circle you can think of. Our relationship to God, our relate, how we relate to ourselves, one another, and this whole world broken and twisted and corrupted. Okay, that's part two. Creation, fall. You got it? Thirdly, redemption. Shockingly, God did not destroy it all, hit control, alt, delete, and just say, I'm done. I'm going to start over. But rather, he decided instead of just abandoning and destroying everything, rather he said, I'm going to save it. And over the course of the centuries, he made clear his saving purposes, increasingly clear until in the fullness of time, Christ the Messiah comes. And with His coming, the kingdom comes. Though not in full yet, 
which takes me to the fourth point. Creation, fall, redemption, you following this? Consummation, where the kingdom comes and comes in full, where all the effects of the fall are rolled back. All is renewed. All is redeemed. It's not a matter of when his return, excuse me, it's not a matter of if he is returning and is making all things right. It is simply a matter of when. We now live in the intervening period between the ages, in the last days, as the New Testament puts it, in the already and the not yet. The kingdom has come, but not yet in full. That, my friends, is the history of the world. That is the history of the world in which we live. So why should we be engaged? A, what does this have to do with anything? Why should we be engaged? Why should we get involved in anything? Because, my friends, we need not be so utterly dismayed and cynical and discouraged because I know it looks like things have always been this way, but they have not. They were not supposed, if I can use this language, they were not supposed to be this way. They have not always been this way, and praise God, they will not forever be this way. And he is calling us to live now in accord with that reality, anticipating what's coming and living out of that boldly, courageously. The lens. That's the lens through which we ought to be seeing everything. This afternoon and tomorrow morning and everything and everywhere. The lens through which we see that's one way you could look at this. I would just add one more thing. The God that we serve. Who is this God that we serve? Why? What does that have to do with why we should become, be more engaged with the things around us and the issues of our day? Well, he is the God overall. Remember that text, Revelation 4, we just read a few minutes ago? Did you get the feeling maybe he's God over all? Or the text that I just read from Psalm 24, that really long passage we just read a moment ago. Do you get, he's God over all. Nothing excluded, everything included under his reign. And if I can put it this way, he's not just God over all, but God in it all. When you think in terms of the incarnation, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, taking on flesh, fully immersing himself, life in this world, not only proclaiming the kingdom of God, but demonstrating it as well. Keep your thumb in Psalm uh, 24. Let's go, go with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, this is the first of the Gospels that we have. Matthew 4, first book of the New Testament, verse 23. Listen to this, something of a summary statement of the author of, well, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He not only declared the kingdom, he demonstrated the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom. You've got to ask yourself, what would it be like? What does it mean to follow a king like that? That's a teaser question. I'm not going to answer it. But I'm going to say, simply say this. In terms of reasons why we should be engaged, deep, abiding, not going anywhere kinds of reasons that last, we have them. And when you begin to wrestle and take those things into account, it will make you dangerous as far as the world is concerned and the status quo. 
Case in point, 18th century, the Great Awakening that swept through not just Europe, Great Britain in particular, but North America as well. You know, it was not just about the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of thousands. It was about sweeping change that took place, uh, about societal change that took place from the ground up or the, and the top down as a consequence of the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of, of thousands. Historians will tell you, good ones, will speak of just in London alone, in the times, in the early uh, 1700s, of how the culture was given over to animal torture for sport, uh, to bestial drunkenness, to slavery, not just of Africans, but of Europeans as well, of rampant poverty, of prostitution that was just the norm, of political corruption that was just sort of accepted, of um, shallow churches on top of that. And something happened. Something changed. A revival swept through the land. And historians, again, good ones will tell you, it is that, it is the great awakening in the 17th, no, 18th century that spared Great Britain a bloody revolution like what France went through years later. You can trace it back to that. So my, my point in all of this being that the gospel, when you understand its implications, that that um, grid, that lens that we use, and the God that we serve, we understand all these things, it'll make you, it'll impel you to want to be involved, to want to get engaged, and to get your hands dirty, and get your feet moving, and it'll make you dangerous as far as the status quo in this world is concerned. So you see, our approach cannot then be that of escape. I just want to, you know, put my head down and maybe like the proverbial ostrich, which, by the way, they don't really do this. I looked it up. They don't really put their head in the sand. You can look it up. Ours is not to a posture of escape where we turn our backs on the world. Ours ought to be a, a, a posture of engagement where we turn our faces towards it. And to those of you or to those who would say, you know, just kind of this instinctive sort of because you've bought into really bad theology, frankly, that says, but isn't living in this world and isn't doing this kind of thing and getting our hands dirty and getting the feet moving and all, isn't that little more than just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic after it hit the berg? No! No! That is the wrong image to have. Cast that away. A better image to have is to see yourself as a revolutionary, an insurgent, C.S. Lewis, that quotable guy, near Christianity, this is what he said. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. This is not about the Titanic. 
You're a revolutionary. You're an insurgent if you're a follower of Jesus. You see, understanding who the king is and who it is that has come, understanding that the, this universe is his, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, that there's not a square inch of the universe that he does not say mine, transforms everything, including driving, impelling, getting involved, getting engaged with the issues of our day. Well, that takes me to the second point, and that is, well, okay, fine. Maybe you're getting moved a little bit on this concept of um, whether we should be involved, but what about how? How should we be getting engaged? Well, let me give you some parameters there that I think are helpful. Uh, the first point being the call to love. Uh, if you're, you found uh, one text in Matthew's Gospel, let's go there one more, well, another time, I'll say. Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. This is uh, kind of in that latter third or so of uh, Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 22, verses 27 through 30. Matthew 22, uh, verses 27 through 30. Thirty-seven through forty. Sorry, and he said to them, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These are the just you know the greatest of all the commandments that God has given. This is. He's expressing his heart, his desire for us, his intentions for us. Jesus says this is the very fulfillment of the law, meaning you can summarize the whole of the moral law, all of his commands, in those two commands. And in fact, if you obey those two commands, they will actually lead you to obeying all the other ones. Those two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. That's the call to love. But what does love look like? Not Tina Turner, what does love got to do with it? But what does love look like? The forms of love. Did I date myself? Sorry. The forms of love. What is it love? And it's interesting, the scriptures help us here in showing us what love looks like, the shape it takes, the forms it takes, um, as a reflection of God's own character. Skipping over one chapter in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 23, verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. These are the... This is love. This is how love shows itself. This is the shape that real love is meant to take. This is a reflection of God's own heart. These three things, justice and mercy, and faithfulness. Let me run through these real fast. Justice, what is it? It is rendering to each person their due. Justice is rendering to each person their due. Well, how do we know what that is? What, what is that? Well, the Scriptures help us here to understand what every person's, every man, woman, and child's due is, and that is the freedom to serve God in the way that they were created to the freedom and the liberty to serve God in the way that they were created to. And that is due every man, woman, and child, and that is something that we should be about as his people, longing and striving to pursue and protect. 
Listen to the, God's own passion, his own heart on this. Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verses 1 and three, uh, through 3. Excuse me. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. There's a bit of imagery going on here. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. God is a God of justice. He calls His people to be a people of justice. Where anyone, where anyone is having what is having taken away what He has given life and liberty and the ability to enjoy the fruits of one's labor, we should stand against that because we are a people of justice. Because we love justice, mercy. Mercy is the second of these uh, three. What is that? It is kindness. It is compassion. It is grace. It is not like justice. It is not like justice. It is undeserved and unexpected. Stories of mercy draw us in. They grab at our hearts. We can't forget them. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance. Now what's interesting, though, about such stories of mercy, especially as you find in the Bible, is they're meant to move us. As those who are the recipients of such mercy, we are to extend such mercy as well. We are to be people of mercy, conduits of it in, in this world, under obligation of mercy, if I could put it that way. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. How do we love? What shape does it take? God is showing us. Faithfulness. What does that mean? To make and to keep commitments. To make and keep commitments. And that, again, is a reflection of the heart of our God. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. This is the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. You understand, I don't know if you ever thought about this. Your hope, if you're a Christian, your hope and your assurance of salvation are tied to the fact that he is a faithful God who makes and keeps promises. We are to be children of trust. Trusting Him, and as a consequence of that, able to be trusted by others. See, this is, this is the shape love takes. It's a radical thing. Love, and then the way it shape is to be shaped. It's, it's, it's not something that we are to shape. It's not something we get to vote on. It's not that we get to pick two of the three, or one on our best day. It's not this amorphous blob, love. Make it what you want. It's not the way it works. Now, which I think I have to say that to myself and, and to remind us all of that because we are a people that loves choice. We love options. We've got a phrase, right? Keep our options open. We don't like to be pinned down to anything. Good luck getting RSVPs, right? 
We don't like to be pinned down to anything. We don't like to be obligated to anything. It's, it's, it's why um, promoters and, and um, marketers take the avenues that they do. I mean, how many of you, just, just keep your eyes open to this this week, keep your eyes open to the campaigns that go something like this. You pick two, right? I, was, I won't tell you what the fast food place was that I ate at a, few, a week or so ago, but it was, it was the, you know, the sign that they're on the windows. You pick two, and there's this big, you know, huge, wonderful display there of all these options. All you have to do is you, you just... This is, you know, a little piddly sum. You pick two of all this stuff. You, any of those, yours. You can craft your menu, folks. You can make your agenda. You can, you can nuance it. You can massage it. You can make anything you want of it. You see, that appeals to us. This is why they do it, because it grabs them. It speaks to this, I want to choose. I want to craft. I want to find. Have it your way but not with love. Not with love. It has form. It has structure. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Here's where I have to get into your business. I'm going to tell you what to do and how to vote. No, I'm not going to put us in danger of uh, seeing our tax-exempt status revoked and all that. Bear with me. What ought we to do Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I was talking with somebody on the phone just a few days ago. We were talking about the horrendous, the horrible stuff, of course, taking place in Iraq right now with ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call them. Evil. And the slaughter of our brothers and sisters in Christ there. And, and others, and others. And it ought not to be. And I was talking with this person about how he wanted to get involved somehow. Now he's, you know, decades way too old to be you know, suiting up and going over. But how can he... So he's writing his representatives. He's giving money to organizations that can, you know, speak to these issues and perhaps even, you know, move our the powers that be on such issues. Or here at home, justice, mercy, and faithfulness to find out what are the issues of the day? What are the things that... We're going to talk about this after the service, you know, a referendum, an amendment that's taking place to the state constitution this fall. And getting informed on that. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's what to do. How to vote. Well, I'm kind of bleeding in there. Yeah, I'm telling you how to vote. Not the candidates. That's not my point. It's too complex for that. I'm not going there. But how should you vote? To weigh the issues according to the persons and their platforms and their positions. Because Jesus, you know what his agenda is? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You know what his platform is? Love of God and love of neighbor. And that's what we have to do, and that's how we have to vote. Because he is king. He is king. There's not a square inch of this universe that he does not say, mine. Let me wrap it up with this. Um, where all this leaves us, you know, thinking through these things of, okay, why am I to be doing this, and how am I to be doing this, and where does that leave us, and where are we? Well, we're at like, you know, five till. But the Battle of Jericho, Joshua 5, actually the eve of the Battle of Jericho. Um, you know, like most commanders, I, I can kind of identify here with Joshua. I'm sure a few of you, he's, he's thinking about the strategy. He's thinking about the coming day. And he meets somebody, this mysterious figure, 
Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he looked, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now there's a freight train of stuff we could talk about here, a sermon or two or three. I just want to make like one simple point. And that is Joshua, what did Joshua want to know? He wanted to know, God, are you on our side? And the Lord responds with a rather startling and disturbing statement. No. You're asking the wrong... He doesn't even answer the question. In fact, what he says is you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, am I on your side? The question is, are you on my side? Jesus is king. He is not our ally. He is not our partner. He is our commander-in-chief, our king, who rules. It's not the commentator on Fox. It's not the babbling head on CNN or PBS. We don't march by their agenda or opinions. Nor are we to be beholden to the positions of our favorite politician. Christ is King. He is Lord over all. There is not a square inch. Oh, I plead with you, consider this. There is not a square inch of your life, your personal life, the space you take up on this planet that is not His already. Now, what are you going to do with that? How will we respond to that? His rule, His gracious rule in and over our lives. Let's pray to Him now. Lord, this world is Yours. And we are Yours. And nothing, nothing is excluded for You are Lord of all. There can be no sacred and secular, for all is sacred, all is yours. You have promised to renew and redeem all things, all this world. And you have purposed for us to engage with you and in this world, with all of that in mind, anticipating and longing for that, every concern, every issue, every matter, every conversation, every decision that's submitted to your agenda. Oh God, we ask that you would help us to see the what, the why, the principles, the how, how, how those things play out. Oh, help us to, to be wise and committed to these things. In your name we pray. Amen.